welcome to another Dishcast. Today we're taking a little break into the past. It's with Michael O'Loughlin, who is the national correspondent at America Media, um, and it's it's called Hidden Mercy. The subtitle is AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Explain what America is before we get started, Michael. Sure, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. America Magazine is a national magazine published by the Jesuits in the United States. It's been around since 1909, and the idea was to present the news that's happening in America through a Catholic lens for both Americans and the rest of the world. There you go. It's actually really great. And I've been honored enough to be in the magazine. And this book, which is a, a journey back in time, is not an easy read in one way, which is that the subject is incredibly tough and difficult, especially for those of us who lived through it, to, to revisit without some traumatizing memories. But at the same time, it's a very easy read. I, I zipped through it in, in really an afternoon, and it's really not, it kind of engrosses you because it deals with human beings. And one of the things that the AIDS epidemic really showed us was the, the, the salience of the individual human being reacting or not reacting to the exigencies of the moment. Michael, tell me where you grew up and what's forged you as a, as a kid. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in uh, suburban Massachusetts, a smaller town called Drakeit, where my family and I am one of uh, three children. We went to mass on Sundays, sort of had this experience where the parish was where you identified where you lived in town. So we went to St. Francis and Drakeit and my friends all went to church, we went to CCD together. It just felt very normal, like this is what people do. And <laughs> I joke, it wasn't really till college uh, that I started to meet Protestants, which was sort of an exotic thing for me. It felt like a kind of Catholic enclave, something out of time. I studied theology in college, St. Anselm uh, Benedictine School in New Hampshire, and then went on to study more theology at Yale at Divinity School and have been working in this religion space, I guess, since my college days. So going on 20 years now. So for the sake of our readers, I, it's not just because I have found another gay Catholic here. <laughs> um, There's a lot of them. <laughs> but obviously that is, uh, that is part of the story too. When, when exactly were you born? How old are you? I was born uh, in 1985. So I'm, I'm 36. And that's sort of partly why I explored this topic, because I don't remember it firsthand. And I was learning it all for the first time over the last few years. Why would you be interested in this? I mean, it, it, it's, it's an old story in some ways. It is sort of looking at an institution whose record on this is, has, is mainly regarded as appalling. So what drew you to this subject in the first place? I mean, was there anything specific that, that tipped you in this direction? There is. There was sort of this, um, <laughs> I've been using my journalism career for the past 10 years to explore this question of as a gay man myself, is there room in me for the Catholic Church? So I started writing uh, in 2009, and this is as the same-sex marriage battle debate is really heating up in the United States. And every time a Catholic bishop said something, I would cover that story. I was really interested in this notion that there was the possibility to talk about these issues in the church, because growing up gay and Catholic, I felt very isolated and alone and in a bizarre way that I was the only person who ever had to deal with this thing because we didn't talk about it in my family. That's just something 
Irish Catholics near Boston don't talk about. We didn't talk about it in school. We certainly didn't talk about it in church. So it was just very isolating. So, so this when is, I had this chance, find, this is in the this is in the eighties and and presumably early nineties then that no one's talking about this. Even yeah, so I, yeah, I, I was growing up in the 90s. It just wasn't a thing that we talked about. So as I started reporting, though, in these debates, mostly about marriage at the time were coming up, I was writing a lot of stories about what the church was saying about this. And from there, we kind of move on. And there's this rapid, I mean, you know this better than anyone, there's this rapid uh, societal change in attitudes toward uh, toward gays and lesbians. And I'm, I'm really intrigued, like maybe there is a possibility that I can be openly gay and be in the church and make it work somehow. But it, it, the the way I came to this particular topic was I kind of had always known about these different events that were happening in the 80s. So I had known that the church was really awful to gay and lesbian people in the 1980s. I'd kind of known that there was this crackdown from the Vatican as gay rights advocates were fighting for civil rights. Um, and I, I knew that bishops were kicking groups out of churches, that groups like Dignity were no longer allowed to uh, worship in Catholic spaces. And I had all these different data points kind of existing in my head. But the weird thing was I never put them together against the uh, backdrop of HIV and AIDS. So I knew that there was this intense battle happening between the gay community and the Catholic Church, but I never made that connection. And it was so strange to me to then think, oh, my God, the Vatican is cracking down on gay Catholics as HIV and AIDS is like raging throughout the United States and around the world. And that just put everything in a whole new perspective for me. Kind of the cruelty of, of that was heightened even more. And it was actually at, at dinner with a priest friend one night who uh, was a couple decades older than me and was telling me that when he was a young priest, he uh, started something of an informal ministry to uh, gay Catholics who uh, were on the campus where he was a campus minister. And he said that he encountered some resistance from the bishop who thought he was sort of supporting the gay rights agenda. And this priest is savvy enough that he said, no, this is a pro-life ministry. People are dying and they need the church's support. So I was really blown away because that was a, a kind of story I hadn't heard before. And he said that it's just one small piece of it, like go explore more, find people, because there's a lot there at this time in history. And of course, he was right. I just didn't know any of it because it was a history that hadn't been taught to me. And rather than just kind of be mad about that, I decided I would do something about it and seek out people to share their stories with me. When did you first confront the, the duality of being both a Catholic and a gay man? Presumably, you're a Catholic first, really, in your consciousness. So when does the other identity, in your case, begin to emerge? And did it emerge as an obvious conflict? It started to emerge in high school. I had my one of my best friends since childhood uh, came out as gay in high school, ended up transferring schools because he felt bullied at the public high school we went to. He actually transferred into a Catholic school because he felt safer there. And that kind of set me on this. I asked questions of myself that I hadn't thought about before and came to an understanding uh, that, yeah, I'm gay too. And it's just a coincidence. We've been friends since second grade, but here we are. And it, it was a struggle. I think I did what a lot of young Catholic boys do when they're dealing with this. And I started to think, maybe I can be a priest. <laughs> maybe this is a way that I can kind of take my attraction to religion and not have to deal with that part of it. So I did go through a fairly intense, I think, religious devotion through high school. Uh, that probably is what led me into studying theology in college. It felt Absolutely. normal to me, but it in retrospect, I think there was sort of this sublimation going on that I understand a little bit better now with hindsight. 
what was that devotion? If you don't mind, I'm, I'm asking these questions, which are not in the book, but are about your own life. But because I think in some ways, understanding where you're coming from here and also where the people in your book were coming from is sort of fascinating to people. And, and also because I'm exhausted explaining my own story. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's what's, what's, what's depressing hearing about you in a way is that what you describe growing up in the 80s and 90s is not that different from growing up an Irish Catholic boy in the 60s and 70s in, 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 and 80s in the, in the sense that it, there's actually remarkable silence around the topic more than anything else. It's just not ever there. Yeah, um, and it wasn't, at least in my case, it wasn't even a cruelty. It just was an absence of any invitation or permission to talk about this. I had a wonderful, wonderfully supportive family. I had a parish where this topic just didn't really come up. So mm -hmm. there wasn't sort of an oppression as much of just like, let's ignore this as long as we can until you finally can't anymore. And that, I mean, for me, that happened in college. I finally just had to tell people and I did. And that sort of started this whole journey that I've been spending the last decade or so on. And was this pursuit of this particular story trying to sort of, I don't know, in some ways, see if the church was an impossible place for a gay person to live if, if if this particular act of cruelty in this particular period would make it harder for you to, was it part of your own reckoning of how you could stay in this institution it was it feels a little self-indulgent that i committed five years to studying this topic because it, it is part of my own journey like what what is the wisdom of i mean there's this whole you know generation or two of gay men who came before me who grappled with this exact question and surely there's wisdom there for me. And if I didn't seek it out, I, didn't, I don't know how I was going to get it. So what, what I find fascinating to be a gay Catholic in the 1980s, 1990s, you're dr I think many are pulled in you know, the direction of gay activists who are literally fighting for their lives, for civil rights, and then Catholics who were very clear, many of them saying, no, you can't be a gay Catholic. So where do you find yourself with that tension? And it's a tension that I had implicitly always felt, but wasn't forced to confront it in such a dramatic way. So I figured by befriending some people who remember this time and asking them how they did it, I could maybe find some answers. Now, at the end of the book, I do say like there's no one answer that the reason I present so many of these stories is because people grappled with this in very different ways and came to their own conclusions. Some stayed, some left, some stay and leave and kind of keep coming back and forth. So it's, it's a good reminder that I'm not figuring this out for the first time and that there's no right or wrong answer when it comes to what it means to be a gay person trying to find a home in a institution that in many ways remains unwelcoming. Of course, you couldn't talk to the gay Catholics who died um, in that period. So when you're talking about the generations that you are, you're talking about a fraction of them, the survivors. Exactly. And sometimes not just obviously gay people, but, but straight people too, who are, who are very much involved. I mean, I think that the, so if the general understanding of this period is the church was a huge asshole essentially to most human beings, and what did you find that fundamentally complicated that narrative? I mean, you're not denying any of that, right? I mean, it's hard to deny. Uh, no, and that's, if, if I had to critique the book a little bit, I think I kind of take that for granted a little bit. I do think it's an important backdrop, right? Like, and I, I think most people assume the church and church leaders, the Vatican bishops, was pretty bad <laughs> during this period. And I think 
In my mind, I assume readers know that because there's been a lot written about that, sort of the general impression. So I want to set that up as the background and then say, yet here are some examples of despite all that, people did some good work back then and their stories deserve to be part of the history as well. Especially but since maybe, the work took place at the locality and, and, and not particularly well publicized. That Part of the frustration of them being Catholic in America is that you have a hierarchy issuing whatever statements they issue or the odd occasional um, badly phrased word or, or sentence. But then you also know just by living in the church that it's full of other people who are actually quietly doing a lot of good. And it's very hard to convey that to people on the outside. Give, tell, us, tell us about... Tell us about the, the, the what person who, the, the Sister Carol, this nun who, who is one of the first people that you identified who somehow, for some reason, decided that gay men dying of AIDS was being what she was going to devote her life to. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There is this sort of underground, good work, people motivated by the gospel to actually do, live Christian lives, right? But they're not always good at promoting themselves. And Catholic sisters, I think, are especially... Um, they find themselves in the situation where they're doing this good work, but maybe it kind of goes under the radar. And but they're instructed, they're instructed not to tell the world. That's the point. It's the main thing about these Catholic charities is that you can be doing amazingly, but you're, the idea that you go out and brag about it is obviously counted to the very faith that you're practicing. It's true. And so many of these sisters I talked to said, no, we just did the work. That's what we were supposed to do. That was our job. And there's this humility that <laughs> I actually find frustrating sometimes because what they did was extraordinary, heroic work. And I believe them, though, when they say that they think they were just doing their job, like this is what the gospel tells them to do. So they did it. I'm glad that some of these stories are going to get out there more, especially Carol's. Well, tell us, tell us her story. Yeah. So uh, Carol Poltashevitz, she was the first person after my friend who I talked to about this topic. She was a Catholic nun. She was a hospital sister of St. Francis, an order that ran several hospitals throughout the Midwest. She worked in an ICU in an emergency room up in Wisconsin. Very demanding work. She had done it for a while. She was good at it, but she was a little burnt out. So she wanted something of a break. So she found a listing for a home care nursing job in Belleville, Illinois. Now, Belleville is in southern Illinois. It's about 30 minutes from St. Louis, but it's a very small city. And once you leave Belleville, it's just cornfields, soybean fields. It's a very rural part of Illinois. So she took a job down there and was settling in. It definitely was a slower pace. She started to think, maybe I did the wrong thing. I'm a little bored here, actually. But then she remembers the first time she encountered someone with AIDS. Her boss had sent her out to a very small uh, town in this part of the country. And she encountered a young man. And he had uh, grown up in this town, discovered he was gay, decided he had to leave because there was just no future for him there. So he packed up and moved to New York. And he wanted to uh, start a career in performing arts and actually did pretty well. He landed a spot uh, with the Joffrey Ballet, was really uh, getting his life on track, uh, meeting friends, forming a good social network. And he suddenly found that he was sick. So he tried to make it work in New York for a while, but eventually it just didn't. He didn't have the support network he needed. So he moved back home. And when Carol's recounting the story to me, she says she'll never forget what the parents of this young man told her when she arrived to help. They said that when he came home, the young man told them that he was gay, that he had AIDS, and that he was dying. And each one was just more shocking than the next to the parents who had no idea about any of this. And 
Carol did what she could, but she was uh, very frustrated because there just wasn't much medically she could do. And she was a nurse and she was used to solving problems, difficult cases in the ER. And there was just nothing she could do other than trying to make him comfortable. She tried to help the parents with insurance companies. She became something of a social worker. But ultimately, the young man died and Carol moved on to another case. But it stuck with her because she was just so frustrated that there was so much shame from the parents that she didn't know how to help. She didn't uh, know medically what she could do. And she was intent on figuring out how can I do better? So she was actually talking to another sister who worked at the hospital that the order ran. And they didn't know this, but they had each been encountering similar situations. Over the next several months, they encountered a couple more patients. They didn't know what to do and they were frustrated. And rather than give up, Carol said, well, we need to figure out what we can do about this because we need to help these people. And ultimately, I mean, the, the book goes much more into it, but Carol and her friend, Sister Mary Ellen, they moved to New York City. They begin a six month long immersion program. They're volunteering on AIDS helpline at St. Clair's Hospital. They're visiting the AIDS ward at St. Vincent's Hospital. Uh, they're going around New York with a gay Catholic couple reminding them, you know, you need to meet this community before you can serve them. You can't kind of be like the savior coming in to say, here, I have what you need. Listen to us, what what we need from people. Uh, and she becomes really an ally for gay men dying from AIDS in the 1980s. She moves back to Belleville and opens an AIDS drop-in center. It's sort of a place where people can come, get connected to healthcare professionals. I talked to one uh, person who was an early client there who couldn't find a dentist, and she helped uh, him find a dentist, which meant the world to him at the time, and becomes uh, and really an a leading advocate in that part of the state, in that part of Illinois. So this transformation from a small town nun who's a nurse into an ally for gay men, it wasn't easy. Uh, it took a lot of determination on her part to look at her own biases and prejudices, to consider what she knew the church taught about homosexuality. But ultimately, she did it. And there were some missteps along the way. And she wished she could have done things a little bit differently at certain points. But there is something that she points to in the gospel that caused her to say, we have to do better. We have to respond, despite what the church leaders are saying, despite what society is saying. And there's something about that transformation that is so powerful and a, a powerful example of what we were talking about of Christians doing the right thing. The, I just trying to imagine a, a nun coming up to you, you're dying of AIDS, and you see this nun coming up towards you. There must have been a certain amount of skepticism going on about these women and, and why they were there. I remember there's a, Father Michael Judge, who was another, the father who was the priest who was killed in the World Trade Center, who was the chaplain to the fire brigade. He also worked in St. Vincent's, but also without real permission. But he noticed that he would sometimes walk to the room and people would scream at him to get out because he was wearing his Franciscan robes. And he said the he would wait until they had fallen asleep. Then he would go back into the room and sit at the bottom of the bed and slowly rub their feet. Mm. I hope I'm going to get through this whole thing without, without remembering certain things. I'm sorry. So, and what happened to them in Bellevue? What did, how did the, did the practice, did the practice grow? Did it, did it, did, 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 I mean, who's coming home to Belleville with AIDS at this point? Surely there's only one person. 
Yeah. And, and to Carol's credit, it was just a, a patient or two and she probably could have done nothing. It would have been much easier for her to just say, okay, there's not much I can do. I'll provide, you know, a, a shoulder to cry on, but ultimately it's not going to be a big issue here. But she had the foresight to realize that this was not going to kind of spare middle America, that sort of notion that it was a problem on the coasts and that, you know, real America would be spared this disease. She knew that wasn't the case. So she did go out of her way to get the education. And by the time she returned, of course, it was becoming more of an issue. There were more cases in Belleville and she was able to set up a, a resource center that at first was primarily serving gay men, but eventually moved on to especially serve women who were affected by HIV, children. And uh, she was a constant advocate, education around HIV awareness, uh, that this is not a gay plague, and that this is something all society should be uh, concerned about. Here are common sense steps to protect yourself. She was going into high schools, teaching how HIV was spread and how it was not spread. Was she, uh, she, was was she, telling, to, was she telling the truth about condoms? She was. And this is something I find fascinating about her. She, I think part of her courage there was that she was a nurse, so she was not afraid of medical issues. So she was explaining, yes, HIV can be spread through sexual acts. Here are ways to keep yourself safe. It won't be spread through hugging and kissing. She's being very upfront. And I asked her if she got any pushback from for that from uh, church authorities. And she said, not much. She said, she intentionally kind of kept things under the radar often. This is before the internet, so there was no one filming her and posting it online, things like that. But she wasn't afraid of the truth. And I think it was being in New York and sort of seeing the devastation firsthand that not being truthful can cause that made her go back and become something of a trailblazer and making sure that information was getting out there. Isn't she the exception that proves the rule, though? What other instances show that... Catholic church or Catholic priests, nuns or whatever on the ground really did mobilize in this way. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. There were lots of efforts by Catholic leaders to undermine public health campaigns. I mean, I, I, I was somewhat shocked, though I shouldn't have been. The Catholic League, sort of this conservative a watchdog group, I suppose, they actually took out ads on public transit in the 90s saying that condoms didn't work that they didn't prevent the spread of HIV. Cardinal O'Connor in New York was a little less uh, direct in that, but he tried to cast doubt on these public health campaigns. The church promoted abstinence, and that's what his message was. Uh, there was a big battle, though, between bishops about how honest they should be about the best ways to fight the spread of HIV. There was a group of bishops who said, it's pretty clear that condoms do help. And even though we're opposed to them for various reasons, mostly for birth control, we need to be honest about uh, that this is a public health crisis. And if they help, we should work with uh, organizations that promote this. But there was a bigger group of bishops who said, no, we have to remain firm that abstinence is the only uh, acceptable Catholic way to stop the spread of HIV. And they went out. But there were, um, yeah, there were church leaders who were very much intentionally undermining public health campaigns who were far more powerful than people like Carol kind of working in the trenches. So, so that's I, I also why take that away. groups like ACT UP began to target Catholic Church. Uh, there's a figure in all of this, of course, Archbishop Connor, who, who really was close to Reagan, Archbishop of New York, very powerful, but also deeply conflicted on this question, right? Because the church was looking in two ways at once. And then, of course, 
remind people what ACT UP did at St. Patrick's Cathedral as a, as a way to put pressure on the Catholic bishops. Sure, yeah. So I, I assume most of your listeners know ACT UP was a radical protest group fighting for the rights of, of gay men, but also in HIV awareness and AIDS. And they targeted Wall Street, they targeted pharmaceutical companies, the government, and eventually they took on the Catholic Church in December 1989. And there was this debate where members of ACT UP, a lot of them said they didn't care what Catholics did internally. Like if they want to uh, discriminate against gay men, that's fine. Gay men don't have to join the organization. We'll leave it at that. What a lot of them said, many of them who I interviewed as well, was that once the Catholic Church kind of crossed over into the public square and became political, that's when they had a problem with the, the organization. And Cardinal O'Connor was a very powerful figure. Like you said, I think it's hard for someone my age um, who's growing up with a much diminished church to understand the kind of power he had. He could call the president when he wanted. He was appointed to the White House's AIDS commission. Uh, he, was on, he was in the tabloids in New York regularly. That's not something that we see uh, as much today. And Cardinal O'Connor was using his office to fight against gay civil rights bills in New York, to fight against safe sex campaigns that activists wanted targeted. Uh, but that was the key, schools. right? He, was, he refused to allow pro-condom information to be put out there to pre prevent people from, from getting HIV. Yep. And he was really against the idea that high schoolers would be given this kind of material. That sort of seems to be what set off ACT UP. So they take a vote. They say, we're going to protest the church. Gay Catholics had already been protesting O'Connor. So there was this movement already that O'Connor is a political figure who should be protested. There were Catholic members of ACT UP who supported this. And the idea initially was there would be a big protest outside the cathedral. Um, in December, sort of calling attention to O'Connor's public positions. But some groups have act up, and it was a very disparate group where there were all different kinds of activists and you could kind of do your own thing. Some groups decided that they would actually go into the cathedral and stage sort of a silent protest, uh, keep things peaceful, but make it known that they were really against O'Connor's views on this. Ultimately, the, the protest seemed to be failing because the church got wind that this was happening. There were tons of cops inside the church. The mayor had gone. Uh, to the mass, there was this show of solidarity with the church. So a couple members of ACT UP decide that they want to kind of take it to the next level. There's some screaming, some whistling, some chanting. Uh, is it people point, outside or inside the church? This is inside the cathedral at this point. So, so people so came in people there. Outside and then hundreds inside. But, but people inside came in as if they were regular churchgoers. You, you really you, couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, I, I, I kind of laughed when I interviewed some people. They actually went out of their way to make sure they looked like what they thought churchgoers would look like. So they got rid of their T-shirts and jeans and put on button-down shirts and coats and really tried to blend in. And they were successful at it. And, and, and what, what happened inside? When did that start? What was the first moment when it sort of began to get out of control? It was during O'Connor's sermon. So they figured the homily was the least sacred part of Mass. They thought it was when O'Connor would most likely preach something political. So they decided that that would be when they would stage a die-in. So the idea was at that moment, activists would throw themselves on the floor and sort of invite the police to carry them away to create a spectacle. But things were kind of, they weren't going... Um, it wasn't as dramatic as some of the activists wanted. So there was one activist named Michael Petrellis who was inside the church and was getting really frustrated. He just thought they needed to do more to get their point across. So he stood on his pew and he started blowing a whistle and screaming, O'Connor, you're killing us, stop killing us. And this is when things kind of went off the rails. The organist started playing, O'Connor urged the congregation to pray and 
police moved in, they arrested lots of people, they removed lots of people on stretchers. ACT UP has made its presence known. So that happens and ultimately math kind of return, returns to normal. So ACT UP did its thing and the Cardinal thinks that we've moved on and we can continue mass. But then there were, there were more sort of cells of ACT UP who were going to do protests at different points. And during one of the parts of the mass during communion, the activists were going to go up to receive communion. And instead of saying amen, after the priest says the body of Christ, as you're supposed to do, they would say something that uh, a political message or something meaningful to them to show their disagreement with the church. Uh, so I, in the book, I profile uh, one activist who talks about how difficult it was to figure out what he would say. And he, he's Catholic and a member of ACT UP. And it was a really kind of harrowing moment for him. But during that part of the protest, I, one I, of the activists- I know, I know that guy, by the way. Yeah. I knew him very well for a long time. Remarkable. Yeah, Sean, Sean Strub. Uh, right? Yeah, who has a great book as well of his own about this time. Yeah. Um, how he's still alive, God only knows. I mean, he was hanging by the tiniest thread all the time. So he's going up to communion and he's a Catholic boy too, right? And, and O'Connor is, or whoever it was, maybe not O'Connor, another priest or lay minister. And what happens? Yeah. What so it, it's a priest and Sean had, he had worn the costume to blend in, but underneath his button down shirt, he's wearing an act up t-shirt. So as he's walking up to communion, he sort of unbuttons the shirt so that people will know he's an act up. That's sort of one um, form of protest that he's engaged in. But he, he told me he, he really didn't know what he would say, what his part of the protest would be. And his partner had died a, almost a year to the day before this mass, and he was kind of a wreck. He was dealing with his own illness himself. And when he got to communion, he said he hadn't really thought through it, but he ultimately said that this was an honor of Michael, the man he loved. And it was this difficult moment for him uh, because he hadn't articulated that before. He hadn't uh, used the word love uh, before. And it was at this moment in church, and you can just imagine the emotion. He sees this as his opportunity to to protest the church. He grew up in a very Catholic house, uh, very Catholic household, and there was just a lot of conflicting emotion there. But this was his chance to um, kind of reclaim his own identity, I think. So that was that that happened. That wasn't he said the priest didn't react badly. At this point, I think they had, the priests had figured out what was going on. There wasn't too much disrespect, I guess, in the priest's eyes because they kept distributing communion. And he said that he got back to his pew and the rest of the day was just a blur. But there was something during this part of the protest that did cause commotion. Another ACT UP member approached communion. He was part of this group that was doing this communion protest. And rather than uh, say his bit and consume the host, which was the plan, he actually crumbled up the Eucharist, which for Catholics is a sacrilege of certainly blasphemy. It's sort of the ultimate sign of God's presence in the world. So this was an act that sort of crossed the line in terms of the church. And ultimately it's what the media focused on. So the headlines the next day, um, ACT UP, I think, was winning the protest. There was a lot of sympathy because it was such a dramatic display of emotion. But once uh, the media focused on that, it sort of generated this flood of sympathy from political leaders and media figures for the church because there was this act of desecration. So that kind of became the story uh, that ACT UP violated or desecrated Catholic sacrament. How did that affect the way that Catholic agencies or indeed just regular Catholics were dealing with the question of AIDS in, in New York City, for example, to, to, to cite the salient example here? Yeah, the ACT UP uh, activists I asked similar questions to said that they were conflicted as it was happening, but in retrospect, they think that 
they actually achieved what they were going for because it, uh, it, it awakened people to the power the church had over political decisions in the city. And I mean, one thing to remember is the church is in some ways doing a lot of AIDS healthcare ministry at this time uh, because there's a lot of Catholic hospitals in the city, but they're doing it with government money. So that's sort of another tension that act up or, or sort of another uh, protest point because the church was accepting public money, but they had this teaching against condoms and how does that impact public health campaigns? C Cardinal O'Connor, for his part, he was a very savvy uh, political leader in some ways. He knew, he knew how to use the media to advance his agenda and his views. And rather than, I mean, he certainly didn't, he didn't, he wasn't afraid to articulate the, the Catholic belief that what happened was sacrilegious and, and disturbing to him. But a few weeks later, he announced that the archdiocese would spend even more money on HIV and AIDS healthcare ministry. So he kind of responded in a way by saying, we understand your anger, we're going to do more. But in terms of the uh, political and social questions, he never wavered from that conservative viewpoint, even though he understood that there was a great human need there. Right, which is, which is, which is somewhat sobering. I'm trying also to get a sense of the other heroes here, Catholic heroes who defied that really rather oppressive context, which may be hard for people today to fully wrap their heads around. But it essentially stigmatized working for people with HIV in some kind of way. It felt that we were helping the sinners. Who revolted against this on the ground? I mean, where were the heroes apart from like Sister Sister Carol? There's a, there's a priest I profile in the book named Father William Hart McNichols. He was a young Jesuit priest in the 1980s. And he was engaged in HIV and AIDS ministry in New York. He didn't invent it, but he was one of the early practitioners of it, of a, of a Catholic engaged in this kind of ministry. But the reason I find Bill's story so compelling is he decided as a young priest that in order to do this kind of ministry effectively, he had to be honest about himself. And he came out as gay in the 1980s, which for a Catholic priest at the time, there were some gay priests. There were some openly gay priests, but not many. But he came out in a very public way. He wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times where he didn't identify as gay, but it was clear that he was getting ready to come out publicly. And he ultimately did. He wanted the, the gay community that he ministered to to know they had an ally in him. He wanted to kind of fend off the rumors about him, about his sexuality. He knew that to be a man working with people with HIV and AIDS was an invitation to kind of speculate about his own sexuality. So he figured he would just confront it head on and say, I'm a gay priest, I live celibately, and I'm here to here to help. Interestingly, I mean, we were talking about how some people just didn't want to see priests in their hospital rooms. Uh, he encountered that a lot. He said it was this, he understood it completely, he respected it. He said it was a little difficult because he felt rejected by the church for coming out as gay and then felt rejected by the gay community because he was a priest. So he like, he really um, took to heart this idea that the power of rejection on, on an individual. Father Bill, his story is one kind of speaking truth to power, but in a very gentle way. And I think that's the, of everyone I profile in the book, that seems to be a common thread as well. They're willing to stand up and speak the truth, but the human connections they form through ministry are too important for them to imperil, to do it in any kind of loud way, which can invite some criticism. I, I, there are people who say, no, if, if you're a gay priest and you're working in the church, especially at this time, you should have been louder and more vocal because the church was doing such harm to LGBT people. But Father Bill, um, he did suffer for this. I mean, he he received a lot of a lot of hate mail. He was told by his religious order that 
coming out was fine, but he wouldn't be allowed to work near children, basically, is what they were telling him. He wouldn't be allowed to work in a school or a college. Ultimately, he left the Jesuits and is a diocesan priest today. But there was this sense that he wanted other priests to come out and be honest about themselves because he knew that there were so many gay priests, but it just it wasn't there was never a critical mass of people to kind of follow in his footsteps. When I reading about some of the figures here in the church leadership at that moment, it's striking to me that someone that we have Bernard Law, Cardinal Boston, we have McCarrick in Washington, we have O'Connor in New York. And now we also know what McCarrick who McCarrick was, and we now know more clearly how disproportionately gay the hierarchy and the priesthood of the Catholic Church was. To what extent did their fear of being outed prevent them from engaging this problem the way they should? It's, it's, it's interesting to me that it's women that, that seem to have taken the initiative here. And how, how big a factor was that, do you think? Yeah, so what, what you're alluding to with Cardinal Law and Archbishop McCarrick, when Cardinal O'Connor was leading this group of bishops who said, no, we have to remain very firm that we're anti-condom, that even if it's used to prevent the spread of HIV, we're going to be against it. He said that he was going to round up other bishops who shared this view. And ultimately, there were actually only a handful who kind of signed on to that statement. But one of them was Cardinal Law in Boston. Another was Archbishop McCarrick in New Jersey. And I was I was I knew the names, obviously, and I was just curious. And I went back and I was researching Cardinal Law. And at Literally at the same time as he was signing this document, we now know from court records and lawsuits that uh, he was overseeing the reassignment of a sexually abusive priests. So this disconnect uh, between his public statements and what he was doing in private is just horrifying as, as, as a Catholic. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of shame. I mean, you wrote that, that great piece a couple of years ago now about gay priests and sort of the, what the closet does to the priesthood and the hierarchy. And there was this sense of, we know this with Carrick's case now, who's facing more accusations of sexual abuse, that the, the closet was partly responsible for creating this culture of secrecy and shame. I think of Frederick Martel's book that came out a couple of years ago. There was a role in terms of the church's cover-up caused by the closet, not by gay priests necessarily, but what the closet was doing. And I'm sure that, uh, though I don't go into this in the book, I'm sure that that led to some of the trouble or problems when it came to the church's responses to HIV and AIDS. If you were to give it a grade as a, I mean, I guess there are various grades you can give for how people respond in these crises. And I guess what you're saying is that the response was, was, was weirdly dichotic. It was both, I mean, it, it took Ratzinger in 1986, just so the darkness was really descending for the Vatican to explicitly uh, call gay people objectively disordered, which seems horrible timing. We're, we're also know now that all these people sitting around making these decisions were also implicated themselves and knew they were, both as gay men and as closet cases and as either perpetrating or condoning covering up uh, the violent, well, not violent necessarily, but the sexual abuse of boys, kids, and fellow priests or seminarians. So at some point, you want to just say to hell with a lot of you, right? Yeah, no, it's a mess. <laughs> and like I said, I think I probably take that for granted that readers understand that now. Um, but no, it, I mean, it, it's not good. I mean, what what the what these what some of these bishops are doing now, what I tried to do in the book is show that there was a debate. There wasn't uniformity on this issue among U.S. bishops. I think there was some understanding, some 
and in some cases, bishops let sort of empathy uh, control their public statements rather than sort of adherence to Pope John Paul II's party line on this, which was for many years, just don't talk about it, and then sort of crack down on on gay rights in the church. No, it, it, it's, it's not good. And that's, that's why people like Carol and Bill, why they're so fascinating to me. Despite all that, they were able to step up and do the right thing. And I wish, I wish maybe I asked better questions or they were able to better articulate what drove them to do that, because I would like to know for myself. And I think the world continues to have massive societal challenges and problems. It would be good to kind of know what the secret is. But there's something they keep pointing to the gospel. They keep pointing to Jesus. Carol points to St. Francis. There's something about their faith that's driving them to, in some instances, even take on their church. And of course, we see examples of that throughout church history as well. But in this instance, it was a real risk for them to do this kind of work. It still is a risk to do this kind of work, even though the AIDS crisis in America is not as intense or as uh, or universally fatal as as it was in that period. Did you end understanding all this or probing all of this with a stronger or a weaker sense of yourself as a Catholic or or as a gay man? Or was it, were, were you shocked? Was there anything in here that when you're looking at it kind of from a distance that you, you knew roughly and the general image is it was a shit show. So was there anything that you came across that you were just like, Jesus, I had no idea. Yes. Um, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I don't know if you recall fairly recently, last last year, I think, the Vatican came out with this statement saying that priests could not bless same-sex unions. And they used this language saying that the reason was because God cannot and does not bless sin. So they not only the Vatican not only went out of its way to say priests can't do this, but we're also we want to reemphasize that this is sinful and that gay couples are sinful simply for being a couple. And I reported on that. It was part of my job to kind of just, here's what happened. Here's who said what. Here's the context. Uh, but it was really tough for me as a gay Catholic in this space to read that kind of language, especially with sort of my hopes being raised by Pope Francis over the last few years to then read this statement coming out of the Vatican. So, I mean, this is happening. Which statement are you talking about? The the more recent one. The more recent one from just several what did months ago. What you make ago. of the 1986 letter? That's the kind well, of so crucial this, one. This is the part that surprised me. And I had always uh, known about the 1986 letter because that intrinsically disordered language is sort of like printed on my heart, unfortunately. Um, but knowing about that and then setting against the backdrop of HIV and AIDS and the stories I had learned, people like David Pace in the book who lost his partner to AIDS and then sort of gets kicked out of his parish and just the spiritual abuse and trauma he goes through to then have the Vatican coming down with this letter. I was upset enough at this recent statement from the Vatican, trying to imagine an even harsher statement against that just impossible for me to imagine uh, social situation. That is something I'm still wrapping my head around. Like, why did any gay Catholic stay in the church during that time? It just makes no sense to me. I'm glad they did because they offer a witness to people today. And I think there is um, a lot in the church for the gay community. But yeah, that just seems like, I, I mean, I actually, <laughs> I went back of doing my homework in, in your new book, you put the your essay in about the 1986 letter. And I was kind of surprised. I thought <laughs> I thought you were uh, a little more gentle on Ratzinger than I was expecting. You talked about the, the person language in the letter you found novel. Well, my view is that, in fact, the entire doctrine about homosexuality was, was, was incoherent, or at least it was only coherent insofar as it was a unique version of this, this argument. And, and it's sort of the conundrum that Aquinas 
put forward originally was that somehow homosexuality is in nature, but not natural. And, and that's all about reproduction, essentially. And obviously, the way our bodies are designed for reproduction, that is heterosexual. And so in that sense, they've been tying themselves up in knots ever since. I guess what I was trying to do then was, first of all, to see the concessions to reality that the church had been forced to make. It was a kind of an explicit thing when the church said homosexuality is not in itself and when they narrowed it down to the act of sodomy because the act of sodomy could also apply to heterosexuals all over the map. It just simply means sex without the desire or intent or ability to procreate. Every time a straight couple puts on a condom, they're, they're, they're in the same position as a gay person. And by understanding the notion of homo a homosexual person, namely understanding this thing is integral to them. It's not an at attribute. It's sort of, it's, it, it's a deep, as, as deep as anybody's heterosexual orientation. Also struck me, given what the church is supposed to teach in general about humans, that that, that was a, actually kind of a, a concession, at least to popular attitudes about it. So I was, I don't think I stinted in my criticism of him in that, but I also wanted to, I wanted to explain fairly what he was grappling with and to, and to talk about the problems of natural law, which was which and how they apply to homosexuality, which is, which was one of the projects I took and I gave talks at Notre Dame and, and Boston College and around natural law and homosexuality. So it was a little it was a little mixed. I of course can't think now of 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 that letter without thinking of Ratzinger's later covering up of of cases of, of both just sexual abuse, but also of mild, minor abuse. And it does cast it in a certain amount of, of weird light. I'll tell you a story. I've told this story before, but I hope I'm not boring people. But, but back in the day, I think it was 93, I went to the AIDS quilt in Washington. And I'm a 5.30 p.m. Sunday kind of Catholic. In other words, I, I go to the hangover mass and went there afterwards. And the gospel that day was about the 10 lepers who were cured and only one came back to thank Jesus, the Samaritan, as if it was to say, I'm here to minister to all the sick, but especially to those who are sick and stigmatized as a function of being sick. And I was like, this is amazing. How could this reading, how could this reading suddenly hit me right this moment, just hours? Then the priest gets up and says, it must be very hard for anybody today to understand a disease like left. This is nothing like it around. So maybe we should think of cancer as a metaphor. And you can imagine the, the, yeah. the, the whiplash from that when we have not just an analogy, we have an almost perfect analogy to these people. And they're all around me in the church. There mm -hmm. is one person with HIV whose lover is dying of HIV on the altar. And so I was just beside myself. Afterwards, I went up to the priest and said, have you heard of AIDS, Father? You know, it's in the papers, I said rather sardonically. And maybe he sensed my hostility, but he said, well, I didn't think that would affect anybody here. Wow. So that's what I was told in the middle of this, as I had Syria converted and I was still, and it did take me several months to go back into church after that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, it's that, that silence and the fear, it just inability to confront reality. Has this prompted you to reconsider whether you should stay a Catholic or have the examples of these people who kind of really did help others who were not like them? Unlikely people in some ways, nuns and priests and 
I, 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 I obviously I get from the book that you, you, you take solace from those individual Catholics doing what they should have done at the time and not the institution's collective failure. Has it helped you be a gay Catholic writing this book? It's helped me be more comfortable and not acknowledging I'm gay and Catholic. I had a real fear for a long time. I think I wrote about how I was afraid to even tell Carol, who I knew had ministered to gay men with AIDS for a decade, that I'm gay because I didn't know how she would react. I feel better about that now. I, w one thing I learned, for, especially from the gay Catholics I interviewed, was you kind of have to decide you're staying and then know what you're getting into and not bolt as soon as you're offended by a statement from a bishop or something from the Vatican because you're going to get that. And I think I have decided. I mean, I I thought about becoming an Episcopalian at one point. I was going to join the Episcopal Church when I was in grad school. Something just, it didn't work for me. It's certainly a much more welcoming church. But there's something about being culturally Catholic, something about the Eucharist that I just can't find in another uh, tradition. So that's, I think I've decided I'm staying. I'm also recognizing that I've had a really great experience. I have priests and nuns who I'm friends with who are friends with my husband and I. We feel completely welcome in the church. We have a great parish here in Chicago that's very open and welcoming. So I've had perhaps a uniquely good experience. But yeah, I think once I made the decision to stay, it's just kind of taking uh, responsibility and ownership of your faith and uh, deciding you won't leave no matter um, <laughs> how bad it gets. Now, some people should leave because it there are really unhealthy Catholic communities where it just wouldn't be good to stay. But so far, yeah, we're making it work. How does the next generation understand this story? I mean, it's a very complicated story. It's on multiple levels. It often seems to me the case is the general lazy narrative. Disease breaks out primarily about, uh, among homosexuals and activists because they staged these demos, suddenly made it all better, and then they got the drugs and everyone was cured. That is obviously an incredibly crude, but it is roughly the, the situation, the, the narrative that people have latched onto. And, and the reason that this isn't challenged in so many ways is that, first of all, a lot of the people who experience what actually happened are dead, and so we can't hear from them anymore. Those of us who did, most of us are too exhausted and frazzled from the effort to keep trying to explain it. But thirdly, we don't have our own children to to impart and terrorize them and screw them up with histories of, of their community's travails. And what strikes me is that when I read this book, it's just how rare it is now to be, revisit this stuff, to remember it that in gay culture and in public culture. It has been, it's sort of a bore now, right? isn't it? That's the general feeling, it's boring. Yeah. I, one thing I was struck by as I was doing these interviews was how many people reached out and said, you know, no one's asked me about this in decades. People with these really incredible, incredibly powerful stories, um, Carol included, who said that, you know, there was some interest as it was happening. Uh, people wanted to know what it was like. It was such a unique story, especially in Belleville. But she said it's been decades since anyone asked her these stories. And I just found that incredible. And she's not alone in that. A lot of the people emailed me as I was writing about this over the years. We had this podcast come out. Um, called Plague, which America produced in 2019, got hundreds of emails from listeners who just said, you know, I have this story that I haven't told anyone or no one's asking me about it. And I think you're right. There's this sense that this was something that happened in history and we moved on. Uh, and I, I do make a point in the book to say, like, this is not something that happened and is over. It's still an ongoing crisis. HIV is uh, still a challenge today in the United States and around the world. And also, if if we don't learn these stories, we're going to 
uh, missed generations of wisdom around the issue of sexuality, around faith, how the two are very messy together. So my hope is I'm 35. I'm talking to college groups of people in their teens and 20s who don't know anything about this time in history. It's just not something that, like you said, has come up in families or in church or in school. So I hope by introducing them to these stories, it will encourage either a greater exploration or, God forbid, inter intergenerational friendships where we can pass on this knowledge because there is something... Um, we're not good at sharing gay history. We're getting better, thankfully, but there is this challenge that I encountered where I just didn't know any of this. And thankfully, I had a priest friend tell me, you know, go find out this information. Otherwise, I may never have. So I do hope that this is really the start of a conversation around this topic for gay Catholics, but also for the wider um, society about what was actually happening at this time. Michael, Thanks so much for joining us. It's a lovely book. It's a little hard for me to read at times. It's called Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. It's, uh, it shows that these things are, as you just said, really complicated and nuanced and have crossed each other's paths in ways that are hard to explain, but that in some ways this was a, a terrible, terrible time. It was another, in other ways, it was a time where where grace really did intervene in remarkable number of cases and 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 rescued us in a way. To me, it's a, it's a sign that actually people can live their own values, that there's much more potential than they suddenly realize, and that sometimes it's circumstances like that that force us to recognize it. Thanks again, Michael. Everybody, I know we've just had a happy Thanksgiving. I hope you did. And I'm not going to say happy World AIDS Day because that's that's December the 1st, but it's coming up. Every now and again, I want us to remember what happened to a lot of people, good and bad and in between. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>